And um, it's uh, Daniel uh, chapter 11. And uh, we'll be starting at verse uh, 36. And um, you'll, and, and this, by the way, we've been doing this for a few months now. This is the last sermon on Daniel. And um, it makes me, that's kind of silly to say, but it always makes me sad when I finish a book, but we'll start another one again. Maybe we'll just start in Genesis and go right through the whole Bible from there. Yeah, um, something like that, but it might have a nice surprise for you in that. Um, the name of the sermon is Go Your Way Till the End. And you won't hear about that until the end of the sermon, but it is part of the sermon. It's part of the text that we're going to look at, and I think it's the whole purpose uh, for what I'm teaching tonight. So just the, this, this much review. The first 35 verses of chapter 11 contained about 135 prophecies, every one precisely fulfilled a long, long time before they happened, 200, up to 200 years later, just precisely fulfilled. And so starting at verse 36, there's a big change because it's verse 36 of chapter 11. We jump ahead, remember, to a time still to come. And since God so accurately predicted the future back in, in the time of Daniel which is now past, we can expect the same future accuracy in these verses, which are about the 70th week prophecy that we outlined in chapter 9. Now, so as we proceed tonight, I just want to say I will not explain again in detail those things that we studied in Daniel chapter 9, the 70-week prophecy. It is the reason I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. And I will only say that Daniel 9 makes it clear that the last seven years before Jesus returns... Let me stop there and do an aside here uh, for a moment. Remember that we've looked at all of world history from Babylonian times. So this is the last test night. Are you ready for it? So there's a statue, Nebuchadnezzar chapter 2 is seen a statue. He asked Daniel to come and, uh, and to, to tell him what the statue was all about. So the statue has a head of what metal? Gold, most expensive. And that represents... Boy, you're so quiet. You don't have to whisper. Babylon. And then the... Uh, the silver, that's a little bit worth a little bit less. That's the arms and this part, the two arms and the upper part of her torso. And that represents Media Persia, the empire. And then after that comes the bronze part, and that represents Greece. Who's the main character in Greece? Alexander the Great. And then the legs of iron, which represent Rome. And then the feet and toes of a combination of clay and, and iron. And then, here's the important part that I wanted to sort of bring to mind at the beginning. And then we see a rock, you remember this? Cut out, not by human hands, and the rock struck the statue 
on its feet of iron and clay and smashed all the statue. The whole thing came crumbling down like dust. And then the rock became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And the rock represents the kingdom of God, and it literally represents the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the last seven years of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is the last seven years of time on this earth, and it's clearly a time where God deals exclusively with Israel. Daniel's even told that, that he's dealing with the people of Israel at that time, and Daniel understands that that time, that seven years, is about the Jews. And he's, he's in Babylon, and God is using him. And by the way, at this point in, in his life, he's just about 90 years old, and he's been through so much, and we've learned so much about him and about how to live life by learning about his life. So now, in a time in the future, even from now, the future even from now, a time to still come, There'll be a king. Now look at verse 36, and we'll start to read. The king, this king that's coming, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every small g god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. And he will be successful until the time of wrath, that's God's righteous anger, is completed for what has been determined must. That's a divine must. What has been determined by God, we've learned about the sovereignty of God all the way through this, must take place. So verses 36 to 45, that's the end of chapter 11, are referring to the Antichrist to come at the end of history as we know it. Now, we see a picture of him in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And the New Living Translation reads, he, that's the Antichrist, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. And he will even sit in the temple of God, so there needs to be a temple, claiming that he himself is God. Now, we've already pointed out that Jesus said that we should be reading Daniel's book to understand who this man is from Matthew chapter 24, and we'll deal with that particular verse near the end of the sermon. So the first question is, really, who is this king? Well, you've already said it's the Antichrist. I know, but who is he? Some have suggested that he would be a Jewish false messiah. I doubt that, as this king is an absolute ruler, and they never would, have, never would have gone for that. I believe he's the ruler of the revived ten states or provinces or countries that will rise up during the coming of the end times, the ten toes of the statue. Some call it the revised, revived Roman Empire. Now, I've been teaching the Bible for many decades, and when I first started teaching the Bible and taught this, especially the statue and all of this, I would have people come to me and say, well, you know, that's, especially after the sermon was over, there aren't 10, say, countries in Europe. There's not exactly 10. And uh, so that couldn't happen. But look what's happened 
since then. I mean, I've been teaching this for a long time, so look what's happened 80 years ago or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, however many countries or places there are, let's just say for argument's sake there are 15, well, maybe next week there'll only be five. That wouldn't surprise anybody. Or maybe next week there'll be two more. That wouldn't surprise anybody. A couple of them might split up. I mean, it's amazing what has happened over the years. And so for there to be a time when there are going to be 10 states or provinces or countries in that area, uh, that would be uh, very easy to believe. Now, the king is the little horn with the big mouth of Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist. And he's now called the king who will do according to his own will. He'll do whatever he wants. And he will convince the world to worship him. Now, I think it's obvious that the world right now would welcome some leader who they believed would bring peace to the world, and maybe even worship him. The Revelation has this description in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people, that's the Jews, and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. This is in the Revelation. And they are the ones, the ones who worshiped him, whose names were not written in the book of light that belongs to the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world that belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered before the world was even made. God had this all planned, even from the beginning of creation. Now, I've talked about Jerome in the 4th century. He wrote a commentary on, on the book of uh, Daniel. And uh, there's a picture of it up there because you can still get it. So here's what he wrote about this part of the Scripture 2,400 years ago. The Jews believe that this passage has reference to the Antichrist, alleging that after the small help of Julian, a king is going to rise up who shall do according to his own will and shall lift himself up against all that is called God, notice the small g, and shall speak arrogant words against the God of gods. That's his big mouth. And he shall act in such a way as to sit in the temple of God so there has to be a temple, and shall make himself out to be God. And this, his will, shall be prospered until the wrath of God is fulfilled. Notice, until the wrath of God is fulfilled. For in him, the consummation will take place. We, too, understand this. This is Jerome writing. He's saying in his day, in the 4th century, he says, we too understand this to refer to the Antichrist. The Jews believe that. We believe that. Now, Jerome had previously pointed out in his commentary that Antiochus Epiphanes, who we've talked a lot about, was a foreshadowing of the final Antichrist. And so verse 37, so look back in your Bibles, he, this Antichrist, will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors. Now, let me, let's just understand something here that's important. Uh, he will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors. 
The word here for gods in the Greek translation of the Old Testament would be the word Elohim, not Yahweh. And the reason I say that is that he is not a Jew, and his ancestors aren't Jews, and that's why he's using, and the, the NIV Bible gets it just right. They make it plural, and they make it a small g. Uh, he's, he doesn't show any regard for any kind of religion at all, but especially for whatever religion there was in his ancestry. So he'll have his own gods, and you'll see them in a minute. Or, now this is very unusual, for us. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women. Now, what does that mean? It's actually pretty easy to understand, except that it's so foreign uh, to our thinking. It's a reference representing the desire to birth the Messiah. That was desired by women, the Jewish women, uh, the desire to be like Mary who birthed the Messiah. And so that was a desire among women. And what it's saying is he'll show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired for women, which would be the Messiah. Uh, the king was anti-Messiah, this king, against Jesus, anti-Christ, and he had no regard for Jesus. He would have heard about Jesus. He will have heard about Jesus. He hasn't come yet, but he will have heard about Jesus and his return. He has no care about that whatsoever. Nor, verse 37 still, will he regard any god, small g, but will exalt himself above them all. You could say this guy had an enormously high self-image. So in Revelation 13, we are told that he, the Antichrist, receives his power from the dragon, that's Satan, and he will do amazing things because of Satan's power working through him. So now look at verse 38 in your Bibles. Instead of them, all those gods, he will honor a god of fortresses. In other words, he's a military man. He, the, his god, his trust is in the military. And so instead of them, he'll honor the god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. They didn't have uh, armies and navies, and he'll honor with gold and silver, with precious stone and costly gifts. He's going to become a very rich man, and he will attack the mightiest fortresses, many other countries, with the help of a foreign god, the military, and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. So he's going to really honor those that come on his side, that acknowledge him, that want to join up with him. And then it tells us that one of the reasons they'll join up is that he will make them rulers over many people, and will distribute the land at a price. And so this is a picture of a world ruler gaining the favor of many countries that place their hope in him so that he can rule the world. And, of course, they'll get to rule the world also at the same time with him. Now, I think it is obvious that worldwide not just in America, there's a desire for a leader who could inspire enough of a world majority to eliminate any force that would come against him. So we should see the Antichrist as a very dynamic man, good-looking, brilliant, silver-tongued, as they say, a man who's Ideas spark a desire for most to follow him 
and at least seem to worship him and even bring world peace. But God. But Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 18, the bulls and the trumpets and the wrath of God will come. Now, it may seem to some of us like this is pretty far-fetched that anybody could be like that. I read a New York Times long article today that just kind of amazed me. Kenya, we have a missionary in Kenya. Some of you have even been there. Kenya is statistically one of the most... Uh, Christian countries, there's uh, this population, the lar largest percentage of population are Christians, evangelical Christians even. And uh, there's all kinds of different teachings. Nevertheless, there's a huge number of Christians in Kenya. The reason I was reading this article is it started out with a headline, 179 more bodies were found. And uh, what had happened is uh, a, a pastor in Kenya who is an incredibly good speaker, and saw pictures of him, a good-looking man. And uh, he uh, captured quite an audience. And then he got on television, and he became the, like everybody was watching him. He was the, the Christian hero of television. And uh, then he became very prophetic in his thinking and in his teaching. And then he uh, says that God told him, your nine years are up, and now it's time for uh, you to bring people to see me. And so he announced that he was buying, he had some land. It actually turns out he didn't own the land, but he sold it anyhow. <laughs> he, he bought all of these huge acreage of land and told people they needed to come there, and then he would sell them plots on this land. And the reason they're come there. This is going to be hard to believe, but this is happening like right now. This happened. This is just recent. Uh, what happened was that uh, he said that God told him uh, that, uh, that the people were to come there and fast until they died and they would meet Jesus. And he even set up a hierarchy of how it would work. The children would die first. They put them out in the sun and not feed them and they would die. And, and by the way, when this article is written, it said 179 bodies found, but there were 400 bodies before that, and they don't even know how many there were. And then men died, and others died. Of course, the leader didn't die. And the reason I use that terrible, terrible story is huge, even thousands of people were following him because he gave them, it was a false hope, but he made them think that he was their hope. He made them think that. You know, I love, I've got my favorite pastors on TV, and we all do. And some of you will say, have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, I watch him too, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we don't worship them. And if uh, David Jeremiah, one of my favorite, or Sheck Swindoll said, I want, you know, God told me to come to Texas or to David, David Jeremiah's place, and you're to give all your money away and everything, I would do it immediately. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> You know, but it, if, you, you, if you look at that level, the Antichrist is literally backed by Satan himself. And he will be able to do amazing miracles and great things.
And we'll, we'll learn some of them. Uh, here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 38. Instead of them, it says in verse 38, he will honor a god of fortresses. I already read that, didn't I? Okay, well, why don't I move on then to chapter, to verse 40. <laughs> okay, at verse 40 then it says, at the time of the end, at the time of the end, we saw that back earlier in chapter 11, at the time of the end, remember Daniel is being told this by Gabriel, the angel, and he says, Daniel, at the time of the end, the king of the south, that's Egypt, if you are here last week, you'd know that, that's Egypt, so Egypt will engage this man in battle, and the king of the north, that's the Antichrist will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and the navy, a great fleet of ships. And he'll invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. It'll happen very, very, very quickly because he's got all this power that he's built up. And then in verse 41, he will also invade the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many countries will fall. Oh, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon uh, will be delivered from his hand. That's Jordan, if you think of where Jordan is today in the world. And then verse 42, he will extend his power over many countries. But Egypt, that started all this, will not escape. And in verse 43, it says that he will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. And so he's been enormously successful just taking over the world as we knew it in that day. Now, the next two verses describe what are probably several severe battles. Now, Daniel doesn't offer us any more detail, but there's much detail in the Revelation. Nevertheless, verse 45 contains an important message for us today about God's sovereign control over life and death. So look at verse 44 and 45. Verse 44. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. And he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Verse 45. He'll pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. This is by the Dead Sea. And yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. I like the wording of the New Living Translation. In verse 45, it reads this way. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea, the Dead Sea, and will pitch his royal tents. He'll set himself all up. But while he is there thinking that he's going to have great victory, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. I've underlined the word will because I want to read it this way. His time suddenly run out, and no one can help him. Now, I believe this is a picture of the end of the times of the Gentiles, which will culminate in the second coming of Jesus. In our Revelation study that is available online, so you can check out the details regarding the second coming, it's all filled in. No world leader, not even the Antichrist, can operate without God's permission. He has a plan, 
And in the book of Daniel, we see the plan carefully laid out from Babylon to Jesus' second coming as the stone thrown on the feet of the statue, and it all collapses as the kingdom of God takes over. His time will suddenly run out. Now, the revelation tells us that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and we'll be there with Jesus in charge for a thousand years. The purpose of biblical prophecy is not so that we can get every detail exactly correct. The purpose of biblical prophecy is so we can live with hope as we fulfill the Great Commission. This is so important. So to repeat what I said last week in answer to the question, so what does this mean for us today? Here's what it means. It means that we must be aware of God's plans and his ways. It means you must live our Christian lives with authenticity. It means we must not be lazy or complaining or fearing and worrying about our futures. It means we're fearless rather than timid and that our ultimate goal in life is to please God and love others. The first four verses of chapter 12 should be included in chapter 11. They should have made those, kept those going. The chapters are arbitrary. Uh, they, they complete the long section of Daniel that began in chapter 10. Chapter 19 of the Revelation fills in the details worth reading when you get home tonight. So chapter 12, verse 1 says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people. Now, just to get the context there, there's Daniel. He's, he's being told this uh, by the angel Gabriel. And uh, he's being told all these things are going to happen. He can barely believe what he's hearing. And so it says, at that time, Michael, the great prince, Michael's the angel, the great prince who protects your people, the Jewish people, will arise. So Daniel, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, the Jews, will arise, and there'll be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Now, biblically, some of you who really know the Old Testament, this is the time Jeremiah calls Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 reads, how awful that day will be. Daniel would have known this verse. He, knew Dan, he read Daniel's scrolls. How awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, meaning Israel. But he will be saved out of it. And so, but, a, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, so you have to have your name in the book. There's no universalism. It isn't just everybody, will be delivered. Now, chapter 12 of the Revelation pictures the Antichrist empowered by the devil wanting to eliminate all of the Jews. But God intervenes during this terrible time never seen before and never to be equaled again. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 and 22. And we've looked at this several times in our study. Jesus said, for there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. He's talking about the end times too. And it will never be 
so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Someone wrote, Satan's attack against the people of the kingdom will be part of his effort to prevent the return of the reign of Christ. And and as I thought about that after, I wrote down how foolish of the devil to think he could possibly thwart God's plan for all of time. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, this is important to understand. The Apostle Paul wrote, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Now, let me just say this about the verse because it's important. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so you might not be conceited. You might not think that you're something special. He's talking here to to Gentiles. (laughs) And then he's saying, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until until all you guys are saved, until all the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Now, this is not referring to individual salvation, but to national deliverance from subjugation to the Gentiles. The deliverance of Daniel's people, of the Jewish people. And then in verse 2, we read, multitudes who sleep, that's the important word here, in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So here is a picture of resurrection that would have really encouraged Daniel. Now, you should know that, and I'm sure most of you do, that sleep in the Bible often refers to the death of the body, but it definitely doesn't mean the soul will sleep. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, I use it at almost every memorial service. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And then Paul wrote this, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and 9. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Somebody would say, well, what happens when you die? You're immediately with the Lord. So we make it our goal, writes Paul, to please him whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Now, we do receive, by the way, new bodies, and we will eventually look at that fact in detail during our Sunday morning study in Paul's writings. But in the meantime, this should really encourage us tonight. Philippians chapter 1, 21 to 24, one of my favorite uh, parts of Paul's teachings. For to me, Paul writes, living means living for Christ, and dying is better yet, even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue 
to live. Now, can I say it this way? Here's what he's not saying. It's better that I stay alive. He does, that's not what he means. When he talks about living, he's talking about living. He says, it's, it's better that I continue to live for your sake. It's better. It's not just that I'm alive and waiting around till I die or the Lord comes, but no, no, I'm going to live until I die or the Lord comes. Really live. And that's the way we're supposed to be as Christians, that we live every day. Now, it's enough for me to say that living life for yourself is a catastrophe. But living life for others is life-saving, it's flourishing, it's wonderful. It'll wake you up from self-pity and all those things that I can really fall to. Daniel and I were talking here earlier, and both of us have a tendency to maybe want to be alone, but we both agreed that we, will, we make ourselves be with others because we care about others, not just so we can, not just because the Bible says it, but it's better for us and them. It's better for all of us. We all have gifts. We're all part of that puzzle that fits all together. We all need one another. None of us are independent, individualists. We're part of the body of Christ, which means that we're to be together ministering to one another. Now back to verse 2 again. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, and some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. The resurrection of those martyred in the tribulation will occur at the second coming. Revelation chapter 20, it reads this way. I saw thrones on which were seated those who have been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. <laughs> the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Here's what Jesus said. John chapter 5. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son. Jesus is talking about himself. And they'll rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. He's not suggesting that if you're good, you go to heaven. No, being good in this case is that if you really are saved, then you will be, well, we can say good. I kind of resist the word a little bit. Uh, but we won't be those evil people anymore. We'll have changed. We're born again. We're new creatures in Christ. We're new people. And then in verse 3 it says, those who are wise... And by the way, it denotes a, a wise teacher. Will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I mean, <laughs> this is going to sound really bad, but you know, you see those pictures on TV where the stars are lined up, and you know, there's some event going on, and they've got the women have their dresses on, the men have tuxedos, and they've got some kind of a background. Everybody's taking their picture, and they're stars. 
Well, that's kind of the picture here in God's eyes. Uh, if we are going to be leading uh, many to righteousness, then we're God's stars. Uh, we're, we're made, God, God made us for that. And we need to be teaching, discipling, and telling others about the gospel. Uh, the great commission that Jesus left behind does not say that we need to lead people to Christ. That's obvious. But that we all need to be part of the body of Christ, the church, so that we can participate in the discipling of those who come to Christ for salvation. So in that sense, we're to live together. Not all in the same house or the same, you know, you know what I mean. We're to live together. We come together. We, we take care of one another. We pray for one another. We use our gifts to help one another. Then verse 4, but you, Daniel, the angel saying, it's coming to an end here. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll. This means to preserve the scroll, not keep it a secret. That's not the idea. The time until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Now, the increased knowledge of Bible prophecy in our day underlines the purpose for which the book of Daniel was written. I'm a sort of a big YouTube fan looking for different sermons and stuff that I can, uh, that I can copy and sound brilliant. But it, there's so many. I mean, it's, you just have to look for one sermon with one basic title that means something, and all of a sudden uh, you're showing dozens of them. It's amazing uh, how much is out there. You see, we are in the time of the end. And now we are learning more and more about what the Bible says about the last days. And as we increase this knowledge, we should become more and more excited about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, regardless of our eschatology, of our end-line, end-times thinking. John Calvin translated the verse this way, many shall investigate and knowledge shall increase. That's why we're here tonight. So I don't think it means that we'll travel by plane and train and automobile to discover the truth about the time of the end. No one in Daniel's day could have imagined how easy it is today to watch or listen to teachers and scholars around the world in any and most every language regarding how things will end. We are blessed with video, uh, many books written by profound scholars. We have no excuse when it comes to learning about what the Bible says about the end. So here's the next question. So how long until the time of the end? It, it may, it's, it's a little different than you'll think in a moment. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, so he's been told this, looked. And there before me stood two others, two other angels. It's Gabriel and two other angels. One on this bank of the Tigris River and one on the opposite bank of the Tigris River. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen, that's Gabriel, who is above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? 
Now, the question would be better translated this way, and maybe you'll get it. How long will they continue when they begin to occur? He's not, he believes these things will occur. And, and he knows that they'll occur sometime in the future. He's already been through all kinds of future prophecy. Now, this is really future. But what he really wants to know here is how long will they continue when they begin to occur? When all of this starts to happen, how much, how much time is that going to take? And so, verse 7, the man clothed in linen, that's Gabriel, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And Daniel says, I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Now, if you've been through the 70-week teaching, you know what that means. And when the power of the holy people has been finally broken... All these things will be completed. So a time, time, and a half a time is three and a half years. We learned that in the 70-week prophecy. This is the second half of the seven-year period after the rapture of the church. The first three and a half years will be largely peaceful since the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. But in the middle of that time, for the next three and a half years... The Antichrist will break the agreement and the wrath of God, God's righteous anger, will be poured out on this earth. Now again, remember that the prophecy of the 70 weeks is all about Israel and not the church. The church is not included in it at all. Uh, some people think, and I've had them say to me, that's escapism. Somebody even wrote me an email uh, when I taught the 70 weeks thing, escapism. Nobody's going to be ready for all the troubles that are coming. And uh, you Christians will have to go through the tribulation period, I'm told. Well, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that excludes Christians from trials and troubles. Nothing. Actually, the opposite is true, as we learned this past weekend from Dan in that tremendous sermon he preached here Sunday. But the tribulation that is mentioned in the seven-year period before the second coming is not the tribulation of trials or even persecution. It's the wrath of God that is to be poured out, and the church is not destined to have the wrath of God poured out on it. And in verse 8, uh, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked Gabriel, my Lord, that's the same as saying sir. So that's sort of the way it would come out in our thinking. You know, sir, what will the outcome of all this be? Now, Daniel had read the prophets, and he knew that somehow there will be a righteous kingdom, but he did not understand the details. And in verse 9, it reads, Go your way, Daniel. Because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined. That's a picture of salvation. But the wicked, or the godless, will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Walford wrote this. 
However, in partial answer to Daniel's question, which concerned the purpose of the events revealed, the prophet is informed in verse 10 that the time of the end will have a twofold result. First, it will result in the purification for the saints. Second, it will manifest the true character of the wickedness of the human heart. Likewise, understanding the events of the time of the end will be possible for the wise who shall understand, but none of the wicked shall understand. In studying the Revelation, we should be quite amazed at the people who defy God even in the midst of the wrath poured out on the earth. Revelation 16.9 reads this way, they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues that were being put down on the earth. But they refused to repent and glorify him. And I underlined refused on purpose because they could have repented. They could have called out. They knew they could have, but they refused to. An important point here is that the wicked will not be eliminated from the world before the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, the world will not get better and better as time goes on. I don't think anybody believes that anymore. Modern technology will not cause men and women to turn from their ungodly ways. Matter of fact, it'll teach them how to be even more ungodly. This can only happen when hearts are changed and being born again by being born again by the Spirit of God. And frankly, without the knowledge of the truth given us by God in our Bibles, the world today becomes totally confusing. Criminals are victims and victims are blamed. Reality is ignored and girls or boys might be boys or girls, you know what I mean. Common sense is no longer common. And one can be canceled by voicing what actually does make sense. And then verse 11, 12. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, that's when the Antichrist goes into the temple and into the sacrificial part and the abomination that causes desolation. We talked about that already in last week's sermon the one before, but from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abominations that cause desolation is set up, there'll be 1,290 days, verse 12, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Now, uh, people want to know, there, there, there's no indication in Scripture why there's 30 days past the 1,260 days of the three and a half years of 30-day months of the tribulation, and the additional 45 days that add up to 1,335, we can only say that at the end of 1,260 days, Jesus will return to set up his kingdom on earth, and the extra days is maybe the time it takes to set things up. And the last verse, verse 13. Remember the name of the sermon? As for you, Daniel... Go your way till the end. In other words, just keep doing what you're doing. You're almost 90 years old. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop living. And then it says you'll rest. That means you'll die. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. 
Daniel is told that he will die before all this happens and then receive great reward. And so the most important part of the whole sermon tonight, I believe, is this phrase, the sentence, as for you, you and me, we should go our way till the end. You know, what's the purpose of Daniel? What's the purpose of all of this teaching about the end times? So that we can go our way till the end. And I think it is a mistake to be constantly wishing that the Lord would come today because of our frustrations or problems. And let me explain. We don't know when the Lord will come. But the certainty of his coming supplies the hope needed to go our way till the end. And it's far better to be about the Lord's business full of hope because we know who holds the future regardless of our frustrations than to be constantly wishing Jesus would come right now to pull me out of all of my troubles. It is far better to live hope-filled lives acknowledging the promises of God to be with us always. Jesus said, I'll be with you always right to the end allowing the Spirit of God to enable us through whatever is happening in our lives as we are ministering to one another using our gifts in the body of Christ in the church. That's why we learn about the end times. We don't learn about the end times so we can hide in a cave and wait till Jesus comes back. We learn about the end times so we can live, like Paul says, right to the end, really live, because we know that he's coming we don't know when, doesn't matter. And we know that if we go before, uh, then we'll still receive our rewards. It'll have been worth it. So let's stop there and uh, let's pray for, let's stand with me and we'll pray and then worship with another song. Father, I think of some of the things that I at least thought were struggles in this last week or two in my life and how. Quick and easy it is for some of us like me to just sort of become totally into self and kind of feeling sorry for oneself. But yet you have given us birth and new birth. You've given us the incredible privilege to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have given us your word. You have the church was your idea and so we all have lots of brothers and sisters who can help us and encourage us when we do go through the really difficult trials or troubles we don't have to do it alone not only will you be with us but there'll be others that will be with us too and Father I think of a phone call I got today from someone who's been through just terrible terrible tragedy in the last couple of weeks more than I've ever been through and he said he just can't get over how much we here at our church have reached out to him and his family. And Father, that's what the body of Christ is all about. And he knows that you're with him. But we do need one another. Help us to be more like Jesus and to live until we die for 